the Work in Sports podcast is brought to you by Empowered. This is the most important election of our time. And let's be honest, voting during a pandemic is a little confusing right now. There is so much misinformation out there aimed towards making you believe your vote doesn't matter. Guess what? Your vote does matter. Voting is the most important responsibility of citizens. Do not give up that power or that right. Get engaged, informed, and ready to vote. All with one app. You know who is engaged, informed, and ready to vote with Empowered? E-M-P-O-W-R-D? Trey Flowers of the Detroit Lions, Whitney Merciless and Justin Reed of the Houston Texans, Afrini Simmons of the Portland Trailblazers. Athletes are banding together to say, get out, get informed, and get ready to vote. They are supporting this great app that will make it easier for you to get all the information you need to rock the vote. Download the app today at empowered.com, E-M-P-O-W-R-D. It's in the Apple Store. It's in the Google Play Store. Get it and get ready to vote. All right, let's start the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition, liftoff. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkInSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. There are many attributes and traits that intrigue me about professional athletes. Throughout my career in the sports media, I've often found myself interviewing pro athletes and thinking, what makes them different? So I worked hand in hand with NFL MVP Sean Alexander for a few years and kept asking him questions, probing at his background, his development as an athlete, his experience being the absolute best every phase of his life. I asked so many questions, I think he got really annoyed with me. Actually, that's not true. Sean is one of the nicest, kindest, most gracious athletes you could ever encounter. He and I had a great relationship. You see, I'm one of those people that always looks for patterns in life. Like, is it where they grew up? How early they started training? Is it a passion that's born within and can't be controlled, only fostered? Is it purely size and speed? Is it game intelligence and instincts? Like, what leads to someone being a professional athlete? What is that mix? I'd ask Sean specific questions like, okay, look at this play. How did you know to cut that direction? It doesn't look like it's open. How did you know to go that way? And he'd go into a complex discussion of the blocking scheme, but then look at me afterwards and be like, all right, look, instincts take over. So is that it? Is it born from within? Is it something you just have? This conversation would go round and round and round and round for two years. I'm not kidding you. Finally, one day, I think because Sean was probably probing in his own mind to kind of figure out like, well, what is it? Maybe I haven't really thought about it very much. And so I was kind of forcing him to think about it some. So it's now two years into our friendship. He gave me the answer as he would explain it. Like the baseline qualification is that you have the elite athletic combination, fast, strong size, weight. If you have those things that gets you to college, that gets you to playing college ball, but it doesn't really get you beyond that to get to the pros and potentially elite level, long award-winning triumphant career requires elite competitiveness. The belief that you need, you physically need to outwork, outsmart and outmaneuver everyone else. That when you line up to play, you raise your ability to an entirely new level. That when your season is done, all you can think about is how you will improve for the next turn. This style of competitiveness 
cozies up very close to obsession. Nothing else matters but competing. This is also why so many elite players struggle with mental health issues, not only during their playing days, but afterwards. You know, during their playing days, not being quite elite enough. No matter how hard they work, they can't get over that extreme hump. Not handling the pressure well enough, not having enough outlets for their anguish. Imagine being this hardwired to compete on everything, and then having a day where your body just can't do it anymore. In 2005, Sean ran for 1,880 yards and 27 touchdowns. That's insane. He won the league MVP award. In 2008, just three years later, he carried that ball 11 times for the Washington football team and was released. He was 31 years old. That was it. What do you do with all that competitiveness when your body just can't do it anymore? How do you transition to a different life and world but just can't, like, put a box on that competitiveness. Not only that, but the world literally sees you different. Prior, you couldn't walk down the street without being mobbed by fans. Now you walk down the street and people wonder quietly, is that? Nah, it can't be. And they just stumble past. This mental adjustment, this transition is just another obstacle in the journey of being a pro athlete. Today's guest, Chastity Melvin, played 14 years of professional basketball. She's a WNBA All-Star, NCAA All-American. She broke scoring records previously set by Cheryl Swoops, which is big time. Her trophy cabinet is full. And she had to go through this exact same transition, a new life and new challenges. Never one to sit still, she's written a book at the end of the day, which you can find on Amazon. She's become a life coach, helping others. She hosts her own true sports podcast. And in the last few years, she started getting into coaching. She became the first female coach in the Charlotte Hornets organization, and she is now currently an assistant coach with the Phoenix Mercury. She's our all-star now. Here's Chastity Melvin. Hi, Chastity. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to talk to you because there's so much for us to get into. Your life as a student athlete, as a professional athlete, and now as a coach. So thank you so much for joining on and sharing your expertise with our audience. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your early days as a student athlete. We often talk about work-life balance as it applies to, you know, people in their career. But really that concept of balance is incredibly important for student athletes. As an All-American basketball player at NC State, how did you find that balance between the student part and the athlete part? The balance really started with my foundation, uh, personally, just from my faith and just kind of having a balance where mentally I was able to focus on things off the court as well as things on the court and kind of prioritize, which was important. So for me, I just had a goal in mind as far as, you know, representing my family and making sure that I had to have good grades. I had to get my college degree. So I went into college kind of understanding that and just balancing, you know, the work life uh, as far as students, uh, you know, making sure I met with my tutors. So just getting that balance of getting my homework and everything done and then, you know, separating it from the time of like leisure time. <laughs> there, there wasn't much leisure time. I think the hardest thing is learning when to say no. For me, um, it was an easy adjustment because I just I didn't care what people thought. Like I knew I had to reach my goals and dreams. So it was fairly easy for me. How did you establish those goals and dreams as a young person? 
Well, for me, I was for, I knew I was first generation of success from my family. And I think, you know, what most people talk about life coaching and putting things in the universe. I kind of learned that from my father as a minister. So I started putting things in the universe a lot earlier. Uh, obviously, I use God and my belief in God and my faith. So my dad always said, write the vision, make it plain. And so I just kind of believed in all of those affirmations from the Bible. And I took that and put it, you know, as far as towards my career. So I knew I wanted to play basketball. There weren't professional leagues at the time, but I knew I wanted to be the best basketball player I could be in college. And so I started setting those goals and also knew I needed a college degree and I would be the second person from my family. So I, I, I had to have that focus. And if basketball didn't work out, I wanted to work for ESPN. So I just kind of kept my eye on the, on, the, on the target. I was the same way. I had no ability to get to the pro level, but I had an interest in working at ESPN. <laughs> so I'm not always a huge fan of looking backward. I, I tend to look forward, you know, like what are we doing now? How are we getting where we want to get? But as you look back at your career as an athlete, especially your time, I mean, you, you graduated from NC state in 2000, you led the Wolfpack to their only final four. You've had a, you've got a full trophy case behind you. I'm imagining as you reflect back on that time, is there anything you would have done differently? No, I did the best that I could with the knowledge that I had. Like I said, I was from very humble beginnings. So for me, this was just the first for like everyone in my family. Um, basically, a lot of people from my hometown. I grew up in a small town, probably population of 1,200. My graduating senior class were 98 kids um, that graduated in my senior class. So for me, I don't really have regrets because I kind of winged it along the way and I did the best that I could and I was pretty successful. So I don't have any regrets. Um, if anything, it was probably just I've learned after that to just really be more present in the moment. I was always setting a new goal and I was always like, okay, I did this. Like now I got to do this instead of really sometimes, you know, when you reach a level of success or you reach a small goal, um, you know, really enjoy that experience. I think, um, yeah, Eric Spolster said it best last night when Miami Heat won. He was like, can we just enjoy this right now <laughs> and then move on to the finals? So for me, I think I, I would win, I would do great things, but then I was on to the next instead of kind of taking time to enjoy those moments because they were really precious. So I forgot to mention that I'm from Boston, so you're not allowed to talk about the Heat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so mental health is such an important topic with today's athletes. We hear off athletes at the top of their game, guys like DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love and Dak Prescott, they're being open and vulnerable about a lot of the feelings they're having and their issues with mental health. I think that's something we should all really respect. As someone who's been through the rigors of being a high profile athlete, what tools do young student athletes and professionals need to better manage their own mental health? First, they have to find someone that they can talk to. You know, they have to understand that they aren't machines. I think back in the day, we were kind of taught like we were machines. Like, even if you got injured, you played through it. Um, if the family life wasn't well, you didn't talk about it. You just held everything in. So I would just like in a, to encourage young athletes to talk to someone about it. There's so many resources now on the college level um, and the pro level that you don't have to share with your friends. You don't have to share with your, you know, family. You can actually find someone that is um, neutral 
and talk about what's going on in your life. So I would encourage young athletes to take advantage of those resources and also have a relationship with their coaches. I think coaches are more aware now, assistant coaches are more aware that things are going on in young athletes' lives. So maybe they can't be a counselor for you, but they can help send you in the right directions because they know all the resources that the colleges have. So that's what I would suggest because that was kind of taboo back in my day. You just kind of held everything in and it was on to the next game. And obviously if you won, that made things better. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but um, obviously that wasn't as healthy. And I kind of dealt with some of those issues when I retired and I was able to find help and get counseling through a life coach and um, through some mental health workshops um, that were very instrumental in me getting over that phase of retirement and moving into the next phase of my life. Yeah. So explain that and dig into that. What is that transition like when you spend your entire life reaching for this goal, competing at the highest level, and then one day it's just not there anymore? What is that like? It's so challenging. I'm Because first of all, everyone, no one really values that professional, playing a professional sport is a real job. Yeah. As people so for the majority of my career, people thought I was just traveling around and having the time of my life and not actually working. <laughs> but um, it's one of the most cutthroat businesses to stay on top of your game and be in professional sports. Also, the entertainment factor and so many people pulling from you for different things. And once it's over, it's just kind of like you're thrown away. Um, like even some of the best, I mean, like only some of the really great ones like Shaquille O'Neal or Michael Jordan or LeBron James are still treated as such. But like most of the other athletes, you're replaceable. So it's it's on to the next Chastity Melvin <laughs> and you're kind of forgotten about. And then when you come home or when you come to when you try to get into another career, people are still looking at you as like that professional basketball player. And they're looking at you like, well, why do you want to work here? Or why do you want to do this? Or why do you want another career like just you have all this money live off of it. And I'm just like, just because you retire, doesn't mean your life stops. Right. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean your life stop. It doesn't mean the bills stop. It, you know, life goes on and it's a new life for us. It's a very new life if you're not around basketball. So for me, it was very challenging. And then, like I said, you don't have really people to talk to because I'm talking to my friends and they're like, what's wrong with you? You have a house and a car. You know, my friends are still trying to get, you know, alone to get a house or like not saying, not even comparing to an NBA lifestyle, but I was fortunate enough at a young age out of college to, you know, get my own house to, you know, get a nice car, what people deem as really successful. So when you're talking to your friends and family, they're like, you got this stuff, you should be happy, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's just, um, it's just challenging on those levels because you don't want the, you don't want to have a self pity or woe is me and people are looking at you a certain way. And so for me, I found solace in talking to a life coach and I actually got to go through like a mental health workshop in New York that really helped me deal with some of those challenges and um, helped me move forward in life after basketball in a more positive way. Is the competitiveness a big part of that? Like that, that drive that you always have and that thing that motivates you to achieve now that that's kind of gone, how do you replace that? You know, I've talked to a lot of pro football athletes and that's what they say is like, I miss game day. I miss competing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, they're just like, well, they don't understand. Like we, we want something that that drives us each day. It's just like, you can talk to any athlete and not just athletes. You can talk to actors and actors. Like you can only party so much (laughs) your money and travel around the world so much, but that's not fulfilling. Now you want something that basketball or your sport gave you. And that was to compete. So whether it's you're starting your own company or whether you start, 
you know, you get a coaching job and you're you're given this foundation to start a culture. You want that challenge and you're that's what you need to kind of just, you know, feel like you're living the same life, although it may be in a different venue. But yeah, I'm always competing. It's, it's always something like I'm telling people I'm cre- creating something new every time just kind of to see, can I do it? <laughs> you know, like we want to say, oh, you can't do that, Chas. And, you know, people tell athletes that when they retire, like, well, you don't have this or you don't have that. You you know, so we want it just more so even for the competitive drive. And we're going to use our work ethic and everything we learn from our sport to be successful at it. In that same kind of vein, we're always told as sports fans that in college you play for the love of the game. Like that's the only reason you just love to play the game. But then when you get to the pros, it's a business. Was business. that your experience as well? Yeah, I learned that my third year. Uh, um, I actually talked about it a little bit in my book and um once I learned that, that it was a business and it wasn't just about the love, like in college, I, I believe that helped me become the pro that I was and, and I was able to be successful for so many years. I mean, obviously the love is still there, but you have to be strategic with your agent and the teams you choose to play on the roles. Like you really have to, you really have to have a, a, a great definition of who you are as a pro and where you fit in and how you can adjust the different systems. So that was basically the business side as far as the contracts and the money and getting cut and trying to, you know, get on a team that's veteran led or get on a team where it's just all rookies or they're rebuilding. You have to learn all the different dynamics of professional organizations. Is it still fun? It's still fun if you still love it. Some people don't love, some people can't separate the two. So for me, those two hours on the court, I still had a great love and a great passion for what I did on the court. And I was able to separate what happened off the court. But some people can't separate the two, you know, and then that that could be a problem. And I encourage athletes, you know, some people get on athletes about retiring early or they can't take it anymore. But a lot of people don't understand that side. Like the business side of it is ugly. Um, and a lot of a lot of athletes as of late have been talking about it. But in the past, athletes didn't talk about what happened off the court. You know, now it's the Players Tribune and people are telling their stories and people are more oh, like, wow, that really happened to you. Like you actually have challenges you have to overcome as a professional athlete. And so now people are kind of getting that side. But back, you know, some people just aren't built to handle both. And if you aren't, you know, there are a lot of things you can do and you can find a passion for outside of your sport. Let's lean into that a little bit more. When you first started playing in the pros, it was 2000, right? Actually, I I graduated in 98 and it was around 99 that okay. I got into the NBA. Yeah, 2000. So different world than it is now. And the yeah. athletes didn't have that kind of a voice. Like I remember when I was coming up in the industry, I didn't know what Michael Jordan thought about politics. They didn't talk about that stuff. Right. Charles Barkley didn't talk about that other than just not being a role model. We talk about that in every sport. A lot of athletes didn't have that voice. Now, like you mentioned, Players Tribune, social media, personal branding. We're learning a lot more about the athletes as people and seeing them more as a human rather than a commodity and just a entertainment source. How does that make you feel as you kind of look at that and see how things are changing for athletes? Is it a positive thing for us all to see? I think it's a positive. I do believe it's a positive. And uh, I don't mean to say this lightly or insult anyone. I love that the athletes have a voice. I love that they can, you know, have that they have their personal brand and they're speaking about politics. But there's also a thin line when you use your voice. 
Um, for me, I like to be well-educated if I'm going to use my voice. And I, I mean, I, I joke with people all the time. I know food, spirituality, and basketball. <laughs> so, so, stay in your lane? Yeah, like, so I kind of stay in my lane. Now, my sister, who's getting her doctorate, I can ask her questions about things political. She's uh, actually getting her doctorate in uh, racial and um, justice movements. But, you know, some of the athletes, when you're using your voice, you know, don't take that lightly. You know, that's something that, people are really listening to you and they're going to you for information. And if you're saying things that are, you know, um, maybe come off as racist or you're not, you're um, seem insensitive to what people are going to, then that, that can cause a lot of stress on you outside of the stress you have as a professional athlete. So I do, I, I'm, I'm ecstatic that athletes get to share their story, but I also think, you know, athletes can get an agent, they can get um, a financial advisor, they can get a personal assistant. Now, since they're using their voice and they're, you know, using their brand, they should have someone that's more um, informed on what's really going on as far as racial injustice, police brutality, so they can have someone help articulate their thoughts and then have more of a polished brand. So you won't have all these people, I'm sorry for what I said, or right. I'm sorry I said this. You know, because that's a lot to deal with. And then on top of that, it's a people don't understand how competitive and cutthroat professional sports is. And I think that's why sometimes people are so mentally, even more mentally bombarded and dealing with mental health issues because they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders to use their voice. Then if it comes out across as wrong or insensitive, then they're dealing with that. And then they're dealing with, Hey, I might get traded tomorrow. I'm not starting. I'm, you, know, yeah. you know, there's so many, so many different things. So that's why I just encourage athletes to become more informed and help people kind of brand their voice and use it, you know, to the best of their ability. It's so true. There's a power in having a platform and then it's up to the individual to use it properly. Yes. Uh, so 12 seasons in the WNBA, all-star leader. When you look back, what are you most proud of during your playing career? I believe I'm most proud of just the fortitude I had to persevere and to inspire so many others back from my um, back in my hometown of Roseboro, North Carolina. Um, just coming from such a small town and humble beginnings, I believe that I, I mean, so many people still reach out to me this day, whether it's doctors or people going to college for the first time, being first generation of success from their families. I encourage them like, hey, you can get side, get outside of this small town and reach your goals and dreams no matter what it is. I mean, it doesn't have to be sports. So for me, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that because there were some hard times. There were some days where I felt like I just don't want to do this anymore, you know, and um just because of the things you deal with as a professional athlete, the ups and downs. Um, so for me, I just wanted to keep going and be successful because I always thought about the people back home and people that were looking up to me like, hey, you can do it. So that's what I'm most proud of. And you should be. And so as a professional athlete, you played in the U.S., obviously, for the WNBA. You also played professionally in Italy, Israel, Spain, Poland, Russia, Korea, Turkey, and China. I'm going to make an assumption here and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing this is largely because of the pay gap for women that you had to leverage the window of your talent every way you could to amass enough money to last you. Right. Um, as you see more women fighting for equal pay, whether they're pro athletes or directors of marketing, whether they're in sports or something completely different, 
I don't know if I'm on track here, but how does it make you feel to see that battle for equal pay? I believe it's great for equal pay across the board, uh, especially for African-American women. I mean, you know, women don't get paid as much as men. And then African-American women get paid less than uh, um, the white females. So for me, I, I think it's it's great. I love what tennis has done as far as paying a women the same. I believe that it would make our league um, even better to be able to have the girls over here continuously throughout the season, even having a fall season just to um, make it more consistent through the year with the fans and, and be in the basketball season and pay them well so they're able to stay in, in the States and, ma- and make a great, great uh, financial future for themselves. For me, early on, too, a lot of people, I mean, it's not just the money because obviously some people make really a lot of money overseas and then some people could stay in the States and make just as much depending on what their college degree was because obviously all of us, a lot of people don't know this, but all the WNBA players have graduated from college so they have a college degree and they could start their other careers um but you you, the season is so long so you're off for six to seven months and it's really challenging to continue to keep your body in shape for a WNBA season and so for me I found it a lot easier to go overseas and just kind of keep my body in shape keep my body in rhythm because you're going to like YMCA's or LA Fitness and sometimes people want to play sometimes they don't so you're not consistently getting that um, the um, physical, you know, the, the shape you need to be in physically to to be prepared for your WNBA season. So that makes it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. So in your global travels, what did you learn about international fans? Are they a lot different than the U.S. based fan, or is are are sports kind of similar no matter where you go? No, the international fans were definitely more passionate. Um, they were cutthroat at the games. Um, you know, sometimes I got quarters thrown out on the court. And no <laughs> Was that Philadelphia? <laughs> no, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're probably Philly fans on another level. Yeah. Um, especially if you would just go to some place, you know, if you obviously you go to opposing teams uh, venue, um, it could be kind of scary, you know, trying to get back in the locker room. Um, but not so much where I felt like my life was threatening, but it was just like the passion was on like a hundred. Um, so I still have fans that reach out. I still have fans that follow me from Asia and different places, which is kind of cool. Um, so that is similar because I think for the WNBA, um, we still have those fans who just formed a relationship with us as far as fan athlete. And I still hear from fans that watched me in Cleveland, that watched me in Chicago and so um, they, I think international fans and the fans that I've had in the W share that quality where they still follow us after, long after basketball and follow our lives via social media. So most of the athletes that I've interviewed tend to ignore the end of their career. They, they just want to think it's going to keep going and going and going. And I understand that because I'd be the same exact way. Yeah. But for you... When did you start to realize, okay, the end is coming. I have to prepare for what's next and start to think about that and put a strategy together. How did that all come together for you? It actually started in 2013. Uh, I could, I actually tell people I could have played in, overseas until I was basically my age now, maybe 42, 43. I was in great shape, but I just felt like I got to stop because I got to start my next career. So I went to Turkey for one more season and I prayed about it. I'm like, okay, this has got to be my last season. I had a great season over there. So, so for me, it wasn't really like uh, health reasons or I felt like I needed to stop. It was just like, I better start working on what's next because I don't want to be 50 <laughs> trying to start a new career. 
it was already a struggle then at 39, 40 years old to start a new career. Um, so for me, that's that was really what started it. I, I don't think athletes feel like it's not going to be over, but I do feel like we trust our work ethic so much that, okay, when we stop, we get an opportunity we're going to do just like we did with our pro sport. Like we're going to work at it, whether we know a little or a lot, we're going to take it and we're going to go. Uh, but I don't think athletes realize until it's over that those opportunities are hard to come by. And then that's the challenge. And that's when they get depressed and, you know, they start questioning and they're con- they lose their confidence. And once an athlete loses his confidence, then it's just a hard road. I mean, that's for anyone. Once you lose your confidence, that's, that's just a hard, challenging role a road to um, be a part of. So for me, I wanted to kind of deal with that early. And um, that's why I started. So you joined the NBA Player Development Assistant Coaches Program in 2018. It's one thing to be a player and quite another to be a coach. As you went through this, were there any kind of aha moments that you were like, everything kind of came together and you saw it as a coach now rather than a player? Everything came together when when I first entered the program and I got to New York and I was there with 18 other former NBA players. And then I had an aha moment like, hey, basketball is all the same. You go through those meetings and I had a huge respect for the NBA. I grew up watching it with my, my dad and my brothers. And although I knew I was a professional, I was really good in the WNBA and overseas, I still looked at the NBA like everyone else does. Like these players are doing something you know, more amazing and it's the highest of highest level. So once I started going through the meetings with them and learning the X and Zos of basketball and what it takes to be a coach, I just got an aha moment because even though I played in the WNBA and overseas, I had the same similar experiences that they had as a professional athlete in the NBA as far as some of the challenges we deal with and how they looked at the game. And so for me, that was my aha moment. Like, I can do this. I can coach. And basketball is basketball. I mean, obviously the NBA is amazing. Some of the things those guys do, women can't do on the court. But at the end of the day, as far as from the coaching perspective, it's still the same X's and O's, same presses, same zones, <laughs> same pick and roll options. You know, so for me, that it's kind of funny because you just you just thought it was different. You thought it was something more complicated. Yeah. But they could just do things like at a more complicated level. <laughs> like yeah. they could rise above when things broke down they could just dunk over somebody <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like that pick and roll might just be a highlight that's you know it becomes viral across the world but it was yeah. still the side pick and roll option right <laughs> so you became the first female coach in the charlotte hornets organization when you became an assistant for the greenboro swarm of the g league yeah. so i have to ask did game respect game or was it a bit of a challenge having to prove yourself over again with these young professionals? It was a bit of a challenge early. I think just as far as the personal space, you know, it was a male dominated when, whenever there's a, an arena where it's male dominated and the female comes, it's just like when I was growing up, you know, I wanted to play with my boy cousins. I wanted to play basketball, but they weren't used to having a female out there. So it was more so like, this is boys only. (laughs) So, you know, when I first started coaching with the Greensboro Swarm, you know, they had to actually think about, okay, what are we going to do with Chastity when we go to eat or like for like, there's a female with us for a group that has never had to think about that outside of their family, outside of family trips or whatever they do with their wives and their daughters at home. They weren't used to having to 
take that extra effort on the job. And it wasn't bad. It was just like, we have a female now, or let me watch what I say. Or, you know, so it's kind of, you felt that tension, like I might come in the office and they're talking about something and everything goes silent. <laughs> and not that they're saying anything bad. It's just like, they were, I had really respectable guys. So they're just like, okay, a female's in the room. Like most of, I mean, how I grew up in Southern, you know, North Carolina, men were mostly respectful around women. So once I, once I, once they were able to learn my personality, you know, I kind of just threw some guidelines out here. I'm like, look, this is something I can't be called. And this is disrespectful. Anything else? I'm okay in these conversations. And once I put that out there, it's just kind of like release something from them. Like, wow, I can be myself, you know, cause I don't want to change. I'm not trying to go into a male dominated arena and change how guys act, but there are some things guys need to know, like that's disrespectful. Those are things you just don't do. And I had, I didn't have any problems after that. And I laughed and I joked with them and I gave them relationship advice and, <laughs> you know, things of that nature. And I um, mean, it was great. But as far as on the court, um, the guys respected me because they just knew I knew what I was talking about. I mean, that's across the board, whatever arena you're in. If, if you can help someone be successful, then they stop looking at your gender or, or if you're male or female. It's just like, oh, you can help me make more money or you can help me become a better athlete. Then that's what it's about. I love that you set some ground rules, too, though, and gave them a frame and said, hey, stay, stay inside here. We're good go yeah. out here and that's not going to be cool. So I think that's important. It's just to communicate what needs to happen in the relationship. And then you go through that adjustment period and you're back to being a coach. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I'm, my dad had talked to me about it. My dad was a little skeptical. He's like, jazz, you know, a woman doesn't belong in the locker room with the men. And I was like, well, dad, technically I don't feel like a man belongs in the locker room with women. And I was like, dad, I'm not going to be in the locker room. Right. I'm not trying to be, their male father figure. I'm not trying to be that role model for them as far as off the court. I'm trying to coach between those four lines. Like on the court, I want to be able to coach them the same way men have coached me. And that's all basketball. Yeah. Other stuff, I'm not trying to be in a locker room. I'm not trying to tell them how they should be as a male, as a man, as opposed to just like all my male coaches never talked to me about being a female. They were right. my role models and how to be a great female. So I'm not trying to do that for a male, but I am trying to make them the best athlete that they can be on the court. So that's all I wanted to do. Yep. One of my favorite quotes lately came from someone you likely competed against in the WNBA, Kara Lawson, who is now the women's basketball coach at Duke. She talked about in a, a clip that you could find on the internet just about anywhere, um, the difference between hard work and competing. And I loved it. Like I was eating it up. Like it was just very inspirational. Uh, is that the part that makes pro athletes different is that it's not just like, I'm going to go out and work hard. It's that innate desire to beat the other person and to achieve at a higher level. Is that that differentiation between those who are really talented and those that are pro athletes? Yeah, it's definitely the, di the main difference. And that's something that I don't care how great a coach you are. If you can't get women or guys to compete, it's, it's something that has to come in from the inner, you know, self, their self being. And I think obviously coaching Diana Taurasi this year, just seeing her at 38, like she's ready to kill anyone out on the court. Like, she's, you know, and then you have some players and it's just like, go attack. Like you're trying to push them every day. 
And then there's there's a player that you have that you have no worries about. Okay, will she miss shots? Maybe. Will she not make every pass? But is she going to compete for 40 minutes? No doubt. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes the great. And, and that's also what makes pros successful for longer period of times than other athletes. So if you have someone like a Vince Carter playing for so long or the Diana Taurasi's, like, you understand that they, they're still competing. Like, they still have that, that, that competition factor. So you mentioned it, but you joined the Phoenix Mercury as an assistant coach this past season. How unique has it been to not only become an assistant coach with a new team for you, but under these really strange circumstances? circumstances? Yeah, it's just, it's just funny. I was like, we make plans and God laughs at us. You know, I'm like, I finally get an assistant coaching job in the in the wobble. <laughs> you know, I've been, you know, trying to get back in the WNBA and I finally get my opportunity and it's under these circumstances. Um, it was challenging, you know, mentally, but for me, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was a blessing in disguise kind of because I got an opportunity for not only um, not only to learn about other coaches and network with the other assistant coaches and also get to know the players off the court, but they got to get to know me off the court, like coaches that I had emailed or I had tried to, you know, had gone to visit some of their practices and telling them I'm interested in coaching, but they didn't really know me. And in this business, you know, people hire who they know. So for me, it was a blessing in disguise because I think people were able to talk basketball with me and get, and get my basketball IQ and be like, oh, okay, they're, they're seeing me in a different light. So that part was great. But also just bonding with the players off the court, getting to know Diana Taurasi off the court. I mean, if we would have been back in Phoenix, it would have just been practice and then we all go our separate ways. And I also got to know my head coach a little bit better, what she wanted and the assistant coaches because we were right there. <laughs> Every yeah. day we saw each other, hung out, you know, had dinner, and, you know, had drinks and stuff. So it was a great camaraderie. So it was actually pretty good for me. So we'll finish up with this. And I really respect all the time that you've given me. You clearly have a really positive attitude, which I think is infectious and it's great. I think it serves you well. We talked about mental health earlier as it relates to the pressure of being a student athlete. But what about just the everyday need for a positive attitude and perspective on things? It's tough right now to stay positive. There's a lot of things happening in the world. Uh, I personally struggle sometimes knowing with how to balance like what's going on in the world, but also not letting that crush and defeat my spirit. So how do you stay positive and how can other people kind of embrace this positivity? Well, for me, I mean, I would encourage people to find some type of faith. Um, I don't push either one. I mean, I rock with uh, Jesus ideals. I'm a, I'm a Jesus believer. Don't freak out people. But uh, there are a lot of strong faiths out there that you can find some type of hope and peace in. So I would encourage that. Um, I do morning devotions. I pray. Um, so I have a spiritual side that kind of keeps me balanced and just kind of fuels that keeping the faith, keeping hope, no matter what's going on. Uh, for the young young people, I would just say, you know, um, balance what you're watching on social media. I mean, it's, it's hard for young people out here. Like, I mean, I'm not, you know, they have to balance how, how long they stay on social media. Uh, my iPhone tells me how long I spent on Instagram. <laughs> if you're spending more than, if you're spending all day on Instagram or Snapchat, I mean, obviously that can't be good for you. But um, just balance what you're doing. Learn about, you know, we came up with board games. You know, play some board games with your families. Like when I was in college and recruiting, once COVID hit, I, I know a lot of the players I recruit, and they were like, "Hey, I got some family time. We're playing checkers. We're playing Connect Four, and it was stuff they hadn't done before." 
but they actually enjoyed it and they actually got to know each other on a different level as opposed to before COVID, everybody was in this rat race and going to practice and going here and never having the family time. So for young athletes, I would just encourage them to kind of do that, learn, I mean, spend time with their brothers and sisters. And for their sport, you know, research the sport. If you can't get to a gym, like start doing YouTube video, start, you know, searching on YouTube about players you like or players that maybe your game is similar to. Uh, for the for me, I was blessed to coach in the Wubble and coach basketball, so I got basketball back. But I know a lot of my friends that are entertainers, actors, actresses, they're really struggling right now because they don't have their livelihood. They can't go hop on a private plane and have a big concert. You know, everything's from home. So I, I would encourage those people like myself, like, I think God always gives us during these these times, like, times to create something new. Or times to like people used to say if it's if it's not broke don't fix it. Well, this is a time like if it wasn't broke, this is a time to kind of make it better. So kind of like evaluate your life, evaluate your family, your relationships, and 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 work on those things because once COVID is over and we do get back to well, it's still gonna be a new normal. You know, you join that rat race again and you don't have as much time as you do now. So I would say create something new, um, mend the friendship. You know, mend things that happen in a relationship that you just kind of blocked or, you know, cut your heart off from, like open that back up and deal with it. Um, seek counseling. Obviously there are a lot of resources out there, but it's, it's obviously you got to just find different ways to stay positive. And also check on, I think sometimes for me, before I got the job, I think a lot of people have this where they're sitting at home. And like you said, it gets, it gets to you. It gets to everybody. Like, I don't really want to get out of bed today. It's the same thing today. And so what I would, what I've done is I started reaching out to, I pick up my phone. I started reaching out to other people. Like, how are you doing? Or just someone, if, if someone runs across your mind, send them a text. Like, Hey, I just reached out to one of my friends who had moved to Colorado and then COVID hit and didn't have a job. So reach out to people and you'll see like, look, woe is me. Everybody has the same story, <laughs> but it makes the other person feel good. And then it makes you feel like, oh, okay, I reached out to someone else. Like, we get um, so self-absorbed that we don't realize that other people are going through the same things. And um, and also, you know, wear a mask. You know, people aren't wearing masks and aren't following. Come on, people. Like, I get it. But the media, the media is really not putting out there. And I, I know I'm getting long-winded about but the media is not really putting out there how many people are passing away from COVID still to this day. And they're also not putting out there how, how many of the complications people have after they have COVID, you know, so it, it really is a serious, it is a serious disease. And obviously I don't like wearing a mask. <laughs> I don't like, I mean, no one likes being told what to do, but at the end of the day, I wear a mask for other people. I, mean, I feel I, I've, I'm healthy, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't want my mom and dad, you know, people come home and their, their grandparents got COVID and they were gone three days later. Like at the end of the day, that could be you. So if and, and the mask doesn't make it a hundred percent, but at least you're trying. At least you're not, you know, blatantly say, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna wash my hands, I don't care what people are saying. Like, we gotta stop being so self-absorbed. Like COVID is real, it's really taking people's lives, and it's really providing it's really giving other people other complications as far as even if you're young, that will last a lifetime. So I would just encourage people to really take it a little bit more seriously. Every one of these shows since about April, I have been saying to people two things, make a plan to vote in November 
and wear a mask. And that's caring about not only your role in society, but also just caring about other fellow human beings. It's not hard. It's not a sacrifice. It's something we all have to do. So thank you for bringing it up. No worries. Jess, this was awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot and I know our audience is going to love this. So thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me anytime. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for Chastity coming on the show. And thank you to Latonya Story who of LPS Consulting and PR, who introduced me to Chastity and has also told us more and more about the Empowered app. So thank you to both of you for coming on. I was really feeling inspired by that conversation. Like I really could have kept going because chastity has this real this realness to her you know she just has this very straightforward and you feel motivated listening to her and she's not over the top and she's not crazy but the entire time we were talking she had a smile on her face and her voice and i think she just has this great demeanor and a willingness to share and to help others that I think is really infectious. And I think it's really important as we get back to the conversation on patterns, like I was talking about in the intro, you know, sometimes you get this thought of like professional athletes, they come from, you know, the inner city where they're, they're working hard and competing against one another and iron sharpens iron, or they come from some elite program where they've got the best training and they get the best whatever. And you know what? There's never really that pattern. You know, Chastity came from a really small town and she worked her butt off to get to the point that she became an All-American and she became a WNBA All-Star. And I think that's important for me to remember sometimes. It's like, yes, there are best practices and there's some little patterns in there, but that doesn't mean that you can't break through those patterns either, that you have a lot of choices and options to get to where you want to get if you're motivated enough to get there. Thanks to Chastity for listening. Thanks for all of you for being a part of this show. And I think I got that backwards. Thanks to Chastity for being a part of the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. It happens. We're ad-libbing here. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, all those good things. The more that you do those things, the higher we rank in the podcast rankings. And we get more audience members and we get more guests. And we get all these great things that happen along with that. So thank you for being a part of it all. Remember to wear a mask and remember to make a plan to vote. That's all I got for you. 